and welcome to The Lodgecast, a nature and wildlife podcast brought to you by the Beaver Trust. I'm Sophie Pavel. And I'm Eva Bishop. Each month we'll be bringing you the latest news from the Beaver Trust as we welcome beavers back to our rivers to restore our countryside and create resilient landscapes. We also explore the state of nature in the UK and speak to fascinating experts and inspiring individuals along the way. This month, we're looking at the power of young people and the youth-led climate movement that have erupted all over the world in the last few years. And we'll be joined by Harvey and Tom from Celtic Reptile and Amphibian. Hello, Eva. Well, we've made it. It's episode six, the final episode of series one of the Lodgecast. Can you believe it? I find it hard to believe. It's been such a whirlwind tour and um, it's been huge fun and we've packed loads and loads of interesting conversations into it. We have, I know. The kind of breadth of the topics we've covered have been amazing, really, and it feels like we've been doing it for ages, but really... Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the the guest list for the series too. It's going to be great, great fun to make. So much to look forward to. And um, talking of looking forward to, I'm looking forward to hearing a chick update, please. Because last time we spoke, you had some chicks on your kitchen floor. And um, I want to know how they're doing, please. (laughs) They're awesome. They're very entertaining and occupying. Um, They now reside outside. I moved them out on one of the coldest nights of the year and promptly moved them back in again um and then they went out next day again (laughs) what a waste of time um but (laughs) epic waste of time (laughs) basically but i'm secretly hopeful that it might be six out of eight um hen to cock split oh (laughs) girl power (laughs) but how about you how is that uh resident song thrush springing away well Yes, indeed it is. I mean, last time we had a catch up like this, I was telling you about the song Thrush that came out promptly at 7am. And it's doing that so religiously and almost so intensely that's actually getting a little bit annoying, dare I say. Um, it's, It's really, really singing away and often doesn't vary its tune so much. So the song Thrush is, um, is a nice feature, but quite like some more birds in there. An aggressive dawn chorus. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. It is quite aggressive at the moment. But um, Eva, before I digress, what are we chatting about today? What is the theme? So this is a really awesome and important theme. This month's theme is youth activism. So the power and importance of the youth voice in holding the world to account and mobilising mm. change. Amazing. It's such a relevant kind of sort of flammable topic in a way. It's really exciting. It is. It's really important. And I think that the feeling the power of the youth movement is um, has made a huge change in the the last couple of years. Have you actually been to any of the physical protests? I have uh, an impromptu attendance, I must say. So it was in my pre Beaver Trust life where I was just finished a shift in a shop in Exeter and stumbled across an intense hubbub in the city (laughs) centre. And it turned out to be a massive school strike and I was totally unprepared for it and got so sort of caught up and embroiled in it in this sort of, it's such an electric atmosphere that I missed my bus and then just carried on and followed them round the whole of Princess Hay. (laughs) And it was just Swept along. It was just exactly, honestly, swept along is exactly how it was because you're kind of caught up in this sea of people, obviously pre-COVID time, so it's just kind of mad to recollect it in a way, but groups of people from all walks of life grandparents parents kids of all ages and to see them you know very peacefully but very purposefully and passionately 
march the streets of Exeter proclaiming their love for the planet and their worry for it was so inspiring. It's such a unique environment. I mean, have you ever, I mean, you must have been to a protest of sorts. I can't imagine that you haven't. <laughs> well, I have, but I think that that's a really lovely explanation and description of what this is all about. It's cu- something that's cut across your day to day because it's more, more important than what you were doing. And so you joined in mm. and that's really, really cool. I actually went to um, just a year ago, although it feels like about five years ago, Greta's talk in Bristol and the school strike I took my daughter along um, and we made little protest banners and the organizers had a little area for primary children because they expected so many a gated off area at the front so we got to speak um we got to speak that would be good we got to stand right next to Greta and watch her talk and watch uh, Maya Rose Craig's talk as well and both were really really inspirational and to feel part of something so big and so important and so purposeful Mm. Um, was a real moment, a highlight of the year, um, and certainly helped um, h- help mobilise um, you know more conversation about it. And it was it was really powerful, really special to be part of. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, it's really hard to even begin to think to start a podcast episode on youth movements and climate activism without mentioning Greta Thunberg. There will be a time when we will look back and ask ourselves what we did right now. How do we want to be remembered? This is an emergency. People are already suffering and dying from the consequences of the climate and environmental emergency. But it will get worse. Well, I will not stand aside and watch. I will not be silent while the world is on fire. Will you? So that was Greta herself, recorded just a year ago by our producer, Emma, as she uh, attended the same climate strike in Bristol. Greta has done an incredible job of galvanising the passion and uprising of young people and from all walks of life. We have amazing study to highlight this. So so one study recorded just 9% of youth are very confident that the adult world will act quickly enough to address climate change. That's an appallingly low statistic and no wonder they want to strike and get more Mm. action. Mm, gosh, that's that's really striking, actually. And I always find it interesting to remember how Greta first started all of this, because we almost take it for granted that she's kind of this totem for incredible change and activism. And it's hard to remember the world without her in a way. But yes. it all started in 2018, which is only just a few years ago. But it feels like she's been around for so much longer, influencing so many millions of people. But she was only 15 and she began to protest outside the Swedish government buildings in Stockholm, where she's from. And she made it her mission to do so every single Friday without fail until Sweden met the carbon emission targets agreed at the Paris Convention in 2015. And I wonder if at the time when she was there, there's that very famous portrait of her now uh, looking very Mm. sort of isolated but determined outside the the, this governmental building did she know what movement she would spark Uh, who knows I mean I suspect she had no idea of the scale of it but what Mm. I really love about this is that she broke free of the system she said I'm not going to school because it doesn't matter that I go to school unless you make a change adults Um, And just a year after she started, the largest climate strikes to have ever taken place with four million protesters happened. And that's incredible. Mm. You know, so she she really challenged the system. But of course, young people talking about and caring for the environment generally isn't a new concept. 
Um, it's the increase in coordinated international movements that we've seen, and presumably partly because of the lack of substantial action being taken to tackle the climate crisis. I mean, it's appallingly clear as, as the facts and the science comes in year after year, proving what has been predicted. Yeah, yeah. And we spoke about this, of course, in our eco-anxiety episode, in episode four of the Lodgecast with Dr. Katrina Meller. And if you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and have a listen, because it is fascinating to hear how she unpicks the emotions behind feeling worried about the environment. And Katrina told us that it's becoming increasingly prevalent in young people for, for them to feel worried and anxious about the state of the earth. And this anxiety can be a key driver of a desire to protest and add your voice to this immense chorus of other people who feel the same, young and old, all of whom are demanding action. And it can feel really hard as a young person to know what to do or sort of how best can you make a change when you're feeling unhappy about the direction that the world is heading in. So joining up with others in these protests and in these movements who feel the same can be one of the best ways to take action and can satisfy that need to take action and do something about it. But of course, in the last year, these large protests and crowds have been stopped in their tracks. So many students, including Greta, have moved to striking online. So for you're on social media far more than I am. How do you feel the digital strikes and use of online f- platforms is, is working? Is, can it be effective? Is it being effective? I think definitely, of course, it is. It's, again, as, as with Greta, it's really hard to imagine a world without the momentum of social media being such a force in getting conversations moving. And obviously, the ability to share messages and information instantaneously at the click of a button is amazing for, for making something go viral. So the quicker something is shared in a shorter space of time, the more attention it's going to get. So hopefully it will either get the attention of you and like-minded people in a sort of activated community or hopefully get the attention of people who are in positions of power to perhaps make these really important systemic changes. So in short, of course, it's effective, um, but it must be used sensibly and wisely. <laughs> yeah, and I guess all the audience is online at the moment as well, out of necessity. So yeah. It's totally. a good place to be having giving your message. Definitely. Well, it is that time of the episode where it's time for our final fact off of the series. Eva, as far as I know, you have won three times this series. Regrets. And I've won two. Congrats. Um, Thanks so much. And, <laughs> and so the, the, luck. the result of this fact off is everything because it, it will mean huge things and if you win it you, will mean you, huge it will things. mean huge eyes on the prize eyes on the prize well and there is apparently a fact off trophy up for grabs which is yet to be decided but i could equal you today for a draw or you could take the fact off trophy home so when's the prize giving tbc <laughs> <laughs> okay right My fact, I'm totally happy to go ahead. It is that male beavers have a uterus. (laughs) What? A womb (laughs) to breathe and give life? Gosh, that is is quite the fact, I must say. I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, frankly... There are just so many questions. It's a showstopper, isn't it? It It's a whole episode in itself. It really is. There's a lot to unpack with a male uterus. um, (laughs) There's in a many thought. ways. There's a yeah. thought indeed. Well, once again, I'm in a position where I can't really be bothered to deliver my fact because I don't think it's quite as incredible. But some people might think it's incredible. So if that's you, then please vote for me. 
The rear feet, <laughs> here we go, <laughs> the rear feet of a beaver are generally bigger than their forepaws because they help them paddle along and swim in a waterway. And these rear feet are webbed and two of the toes have a split nail inside which they use to itch a scratch in their grooming regime. There we go. So you're saying they've got a travel comb <laughs> attached to their feet. <laughs> If that analogy works for travel you, home. then that's what you're bringing you to the go. table here. <laughs> I actually love that analogy. That's amazing. Multi-tool. So, there we go. What was it? Was it Ben Goldfarb who said that beavers were the Swiss Army knife of British conservation? Well, they have a travel comb, oh, folks. Favorite. There we go. <laughs> Complete with travel comb. <laughs> so uh, uterus versus travel comb. Choices. So yours. we'll leave it up to uh, Tom and Harvey from Celtic Reptile shortly. Um, to to choose between those two, but I have got my eyes on that fact off trophy. Bet you have. Bet you have. Well, it's all it's not all about the guests, though, of course, because our lovely listeners, of course, have their say on social media and are getting increasingly vocal about which fact they believe in the most. So, uh, eyes on our social media channels this week at Beaver Trust and let us know what you think. So, Celtic, Reptile and Amphibian are our guests today. Now, they're just a couple of teenagers, Harvey and Tom, but they are doing something truly awesome and inspiring. They've built together a UK-based organisation which works to conserve and breed European reptile and amphibian species, as well as raising the profile of these incredible creatures. Yeah, they're doing really well raising the profile because they've enjoyed a surge of media frenzy recently following an article in The Guardian. They definitely carry a bit of buzz about them and we are really excited to be speaking to them today. So, Harvey and Tom, thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure to have you on the Lodgecast. Now, you've heard this episode's Beaver Fact Off. Can you pick a winner for us? Now, this is a real uh, important one because it's going to be the winner of the entire season. So what's it going to be? Is it going to be the split toenail or the male uterus? Well, I'm going to judge that on the basis of how unusual that is compared to myself. And while I may have a split toenail, I definitely do not have a male uterus. So it's going to have to be the male uterus. <laughs> oh, clinching. What about you, Tom? So, similar logic? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Male uterus. Okay. Well, even sorry, yeah, sorry, sorry Sophie. Sorry about that. <laughs> we have yet I'm the, fine. for the public input, but uh, it's it's a good start to my lead. So thanks for that. <laughs> so this month we are focusing in on youth activism, um, and the obvious first question, really, if you don't feel it's too rude to ask you, is how old are you both? Uh, so I'm 18, and uh, Tom. Oh, I'm 17. Nearly 18. Yeah, quite. Tom's playing catch-up, really. Yeah. I'm, I'm like Tom's chaperone. I, I, I change his nappies <laughs> and I look after him and make sure, I'm sure he's okay. I'm sure he adores you telling him that on a podcast. Thanks, <laughs> And so what's your story, guys? What, what brought you together and kind of what is it that you're actually doing? Because you're on this very unusual mission that's captivated a lot of media attention recently. What's the story there? So uh, the story actually starts with beavers and that's why beavers mean so much to me in, in my life um, and it was on the the Devon beaver trial really that the inspiration for what we do was sparked and it was just looking at the incredible habitats that beavers provide the fact that you know these are bastions of life you know bringers of you know riparian diversity um, and the one thing that was missing in my mind was all the amphibians, you know, all the birds have recolonized, the mammals and 
things like that. You know, I'd even seen. I was with Roshin actually, and uh, it was it was quite nice because the ro- there were roe deer just leaping off in the distance, mm. and water voles, mm. you know, would colonise some of the beaver ponds. So it was. Um, you know, most species had come back, but the amphibians and the reptiles hadn't because they'd gone extinct and because they're awfully slow. They're quite cumbersome animals. They don't colonise habitat very quickly. So I, I, I basically met Derek Gow, and, and as I'm pretty sure all of you know Derek Gow, you know, he's, he's an incredibly inspirational mm, man yeah. who believes in this idea that if we're going to try and fight the extinction crisis and bring species back, it all starts with captive breeding and understanding your animal practically from the inside out, you know, knowing what you, you're working with practically. Because I think in conservation, for, for a large portion of conservation, zoologists can study animals through binoculars or through trail cams or through observing signs, but the reality is nothing beats getting hands-on with a captive animal because you, you work how they tick. So, yeah, and, and basically we formed captive populations of the extinct reptiles and amphibians. And it's taken a while. It's not been easy. You know, we've had to import certain species and, and get them from, you know, interesting individuals, shall we say, from uh, all walks of life. Um, and, well, I'll hand over to Tom, really, from where the, the company end of things, the organisation end of things started from. Yeah, so it was about, it was the summer of 2019. Um, we were doing our GCSEs at school and honestly we were just bored to death of it all. We were doing an English exam I think that <laughs> night and I mean that day and uh, and I think that, that sort of sparked some sort of creation sort of in your mind where you know you're so suppressed of imagination that all of a sudden all you can think about is just doing something different and, and that was for us mm. you know setting up this Originally, it was just a Facebook page, setting up a Facebook page um, with the aim of promoting and sort of educating people on a lot of these European reptiles and amphibians, species that we, before we were exposed to them via people like Derek Gow, we had no sort of interest, we had no sort of understanding. We didn't even know that a lot of these species were out in the wild, even in the UK. So it was something that we've learnt in in, in recent time and something that we've wanted to pass on to other people and we think that other people should know more about them. So it was, it started off really as more of an educational side of things and then it slowly developed as people have got behind the captive breeding side of it all into a more dynamic business where we have different, you know, revenue streams coming out of the business and also different areas of engaging with the public, whether it be doing talks or podcasts like these, um, doing photography workshops, going on TV and talking about these animals. It's all sort of interconnected into a kind of like a campaign to sort of promote these species. It's wonderful to hear you talk so um, eloquently and passionately about this and wanting to tell more people about these. How important are reptiles and amphibians as part of a functioning ecosystem? So they're incredibly important for the basic reason that they fill a niche that practically nothing else does. And all these different species that we would have had in Britain, all, you know, call at different times of the day, call at different times of the year, all have different activity patterns. Some are nocturnal, some are diurnal, some are active during dawn and dusk. And it basically is a buffet. You know, it's a 24 hour buffet for so many different species (laughs) um, at all different times of the year. 
And the reality is, you know, with the extinction crisis and with trying to restore British wildlife, it's a question of two things, space and food. You know, it's about how do we provide actual space for nature to live, but it's at the same time, how do we provide food? Because it's so, I think one of the saddest facts in Britain is the fact that we literally have no red-backed uh, red shrikes. This is a bird which eats beetles. You know, it's a wee bird. It's a small, you know, sort of smaller than a blackbird size bird. And you go over to France, you go over to Germany, Poland, wherever, they're, they're there. And they're in good numbers. Poland, you'll see many in a meadow. Um, and this is a bird that eats beetles. It also eats things like mice and things like lizards. They should not be rare in the countryside. Those small sorts of animals should not be a rare feeding, you know, a rare source of food for many species in the countryside. But the reality is they are. So, the, and the problem you have is when populations are hammered like lizards, they become incredi incredibly isolated and they practically become islands. And that's awful because it triggers so many problems with inbreeding, genetic drift, etc. Mm. So we've got to link up these populations. And this is where beavers come in because beavers, as you know, go through a watercourse and change it into incredible habitats for all these species. At the, at the Devon, at the Bold Venture Beaver Trial, the um, f uh, common frog spawn clumps went from just 10 in year one to over 684. You know, or 584, whatever it was. But that's that's my favourite beaver fact. And I mean, that is absolutely <laughs> right incredible. And and as Derek says, you know, common lizards bask on the beaver dams, on the wood, woody debris they provide, and beavers open up mm. the canopy. And to actually oppose that beavers are not good for reptiles and amphibians is ecological insanity. And I think that's where sort of species-specific conservation has got a lot to answer for because the problem with British conservation is we look at a habitat and we go, you know, let's manage for, you know, bee orchids. I don't know why I always pick bee orchids because they're actually quite cool, but bee orchids, you know, we manage for just one species at the expense of all others. And what beavers mm. do is they provide a holistic way of conserving for absolutely everything and ensuring that every species is within balance and so when we're looking forward at creating a more resilient biosphere in which we can all live and we all have access to green space, clean water, clean air, etc., beavers are going to be integral to that wilder Britain because they once were. Mm, totally. I mean, I kind of want to take a couple steps back here and go back to you guys as mates. I mean, were you always friends? And is this something that you always imagined yourself doing? And I guess... Thirdly, you know, what do your friends think about this? What do they think about your, your endeavour? So we've always been mates to answer that directly, you know, since probably, well, it's been since nursery. Um, so, you know, since whenever we can remember, we've been friends. Long time. <laughs> yeah, a very long time. But um, on a sort of business sense, we've always had that interest or passion to go into business or do something together that's a little bit more abstract perhaps make a difference somehow so we've always had that interest there um, but we never thought that it would be this I mean Harvey's always been into nature he's been into wildlife for so long and I haven't really if I'm being honest I haven't been into it for nearly as long it's probably the last three four five years that I've really been into it so it definitely when I was growing up definitely wasn't something I, I saw myself doing especially not breeding frogs and lizards you know that's that's really abstract when you think about it. <laughs> do you guys do you guys have a favourite species to work with now? Uh, 
in terms of reptiles and amphibians, it's like trying to pick your favourite child. Um, <laughs> it's pretty hard. I mean, I go through phases of just like mad reading academic papers about like European pond turtles till one o'clock in the morning. And then like oh, wow. a month later... Wow, I feel inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it always changes, but it's it's in different phases. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I love the mystery because the great thing about working with these species is like so much is neglected, like so much is unknown. Um, and it seems mm. to be like that be, it's just because people haven't looked. So I'm kind of like the first, well, we're kind of like the first people to actually look at the data and things with fresh eyes. So it's really good. So my, my favourite species aren't necessarily um, reptiles or amphibians. Um, you know, with me being quite recently into this sort of area of um, wildlife, but if, if I have to, right now it's probably either an escalapian snake or sand lizard simply because they're the they're the the reptiles that are actually out and about at the moment sand lizards actually got me at the moment yeah the sand lizards are going they're going green the males the males look like dragons at the moment because they've the flanks go sort of a lime green and it, they're beautiful absolutely yeah, they, are. they are native to this country which makes them even better mm. uh, so yeah it would be the sand lizard really what is the mission for Celtic Reptile and Amphibian? Is it a climate change initiative or a public engagement initiative? What do you, what's your vision for it over the next sort of five to ten years? Funnily enough, climate change has got a lot to do with reptiles and amphibians, obviously because they're, they're, they are cold-blooded, so they rely on the external temperature. So one of the things we actually want to look at is assisted colonisation. And this is the idea that, well, case in point, the European pond turtle was native to Britain about 8,000 to 5,000 years ago when it was slightly warmer than it is today. That, that warmer period will be equivalent by sort of 2040. And that's 20 years away. That's not long away until we will be warm enough to basically be in the time of the turtles again. And so our argument is, well, why don't we make the most? You know, so many species are going to be badly affected by climate change why don't we help along ones which could actually benefit? So one of those being the turtles. And, and by 2040, hopefully, if the, we get the legislation right, there'll be some incredible beaver wetlands and then some incredible rewilding sites. So we'd love to get the turtles back because it would be relevant. And it would also be a symbol of what I've sort of what I kind of call holistic conservation the idea that we don't set you know a baseline or we don't set targets so we don't you know manage for one species we we sort of incorporate everything you know all the factors and make sort of sensible decisions based on that I also I really do think that we can directly benefit um, climate change as well and reverse the effects in a way through inspiring farmers and landowners to maybe stop farming as much and, and perhaps, you know, taking a portion of their land and trying to rewild it instead of intensely farming it. And because and, we know agriculture is a massive part of why climate change is such an issue at the moment. Rewilding will become a really big part of the economy. And, you know, farming is on mm. the decline. So we need to look at that and think, how can we, we help climate change and how can we reverse the effects of climate change? And obviously breeding reptiles and, and amphibians doesn't necessarily stop climate change, but in that sort of movement of breeding and captive breeding and rewilding,
can actually change and make a difference and we we're all for that and that's something that we can try and push towards and trying to do over the next 5 10 15 years it's interesting that you talk about farming there tom because i completely agree and everyone does you know it's a huge huge climate impact one of the challenges with farming is the generational split and the fact that these farms are quite often held in the old generation's hands at this moment and and given this episode is specifically looking at youth activism what role can young people such as yourselves play in this and in the movement and in bettering um, the outcome for the planet and in helping this transformation and transition I think young people, I mean, there's a whole host of things that they can do. Um, I mean, simply just like stop eating meat, um, becoming vegan. Not everyone wants to do that, and that's fine, you know. I eat meat, you know, I'm not a vegetarian or anything like that. But there are definitely ways to improve your sort of impact on the environment and farming. But other ways, you know, we've seen it so often now that people are using things like social media to really benefit the world. You know, whatever you share or post on social media has a, has an effect, however small, mm. on someone somewhere. And as a collective, you know, young people can really change opinions and change minds, signing petitions, you know, starting movements. It really is something that really the, the old the older generations can't do. They can't connect with millions of people instantaneously. I think, uh, you know, I think that um, there is someone who we ought to bring up because it's kind of perfect, which is the man, the myth, the legend, Chris Jones, who, I mean, it, it, you know, is really, <laughs> really sort of booking the trend in terms of being, you know, an older guy. I wouldn't Absolutely. say he's a coughing dodger yet. <laughs> Steady on. <laughs> but, uh, but no, uh, but no, so uh, jokes aside, no, Chris is, a, you know, genuinely an inspiring man, as you'll know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that Chris really does book the trend in terms of, again, holistic, you know, holistic land management, looking at the land and going, how can we sustainably farm this land? I think that his slogan, his slogan is, you know, um, is it something like live like you'll die tomorrow? And then farm like you'll live forever, and I think that's so true. And I think that's going to be the mindset that we've definitely got to take. And and it's like with fishing. I mean, you look at sort of trawler boats and that hoover up just vast amounts of fish from the ocean floor. You know, it's it's the worst form of short termism, yeah. whereby you know we it, we know that economically it makes sense to set up marine protected reserves, but because the companies are more focused on quarterly you know, profit rather than the long-term, you know, supply of fish. Um, I think that, you know, it, it, it's, it's the same principle. We need to be thinking more, more selflessly rather than selfishly. Mm. So, yeah, I think that, uh, yeah, Chris Jones is a big inspiration. <laughs> So, well, yeah, hopefully, I think it's very interesting to hear how you started. And I think, um, I suspect you'll form some really important role models for younger generation as well to get into all of this. Um, but, but linking briefly with schools and education, one of the things that we look at is um, whether there's a need to change the curriculum um, or how we can encourage people, how we can mandate some of this as well as, as a window and a door into the world of conservation and, and nature. Do you think something like the Natural History GCSE is the answer? Um, and if not, what, what could be? How think, can we make this mainstream? I think there's a very fine line you've got to walk on because, you know, we've all learned Shakespeare and who likes Shakespeare? Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that, um, you know, I love Shakespeare, but not because of school. 
I think that the problem school can have is it can really dull down a subject which is so interesting to the point where teenagers make internet memes about the curriculum. So mm. I think you, there's a very, very fine line to walk on because I think you could potentially, and this is what I've said about the Natural History GCSE, is you could potentially push more people away than what you think. Because the reality is, you know, school is not a game of, you know, there's information, absorb it and then, you know, chuck it out. That's not how, you know, human brains work. I think what I'd like to see with school curriculums is, uh, you know, yes, I would actually be for, before the Natural History GCSE, but it'd have to be done carefully. But what I'd be more for is getting kids out into nature because mm. I don't think teaching more nature in a classroom environment is necessarily going to be useful. You know, go and take them to beaver sites and go and show them actually how it functions. You know, point to where the tree is re-sprouting from where it's been cut down by the beaver point to where the dams slow the flow of the river that's what you know more needs to happen um and i think also we need to get we need to just get rid of the addiction with standardized testing because it's the most demoralizing thing for kids and especially when you've got kids as young as 11 get rid of standardized testing and and just be more true to human nature um but yeah definitely i think that natural history is is definitely got to be embedded but in a very careful way Um, And that comes from the fact that schools don't have much control over what they teach. You know, teachers don't have that much control. The one thing I would do, if I was in power, I think the first thing I'd do is, and I don't want to ever be in power, but if I was, if I was forced (laughs) to be in power, I would make every single school a forest school. I think that's the first thing I'd do before I did anything else. Make every single school a forest school can be quite tricky in the urban setting. That's yeah, the yeah, problem but, with that. But, but I think there's some really inspiring work with, you know, when you see urban agriculture, you know, on the tops of, of buildings and things, on the roofs of buildings. I think that's a really interesting take on it. Um, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know. yeah. Mm, totally. Now, guys, something that's really important to us, and I'm sure you're very aware of, is the emerging conversation around diversity in conservation and how desperately we need to be aware of it and improve it and so with your recent experience in coming into this industry in such a unique way um, and and representing so brilliantly such an important age group how do you see the diversity conversation improving and what kind of I mean you spoke about a little bit already in terms of access to nature and getting people physically into green spaces but just what are your thoughts around the diversity conversation? I think on a personal level, the one thing that I've noticed about social change and making a difference is that nothing ever happens, well, very rarely does anything change from the centre. It's always people on the periphery with wacky, weird ideas that come into the centre that changes the system. So this is why the conversation of who is engaged with nature is incredibly important. There's some incredible work Maya Rose Craig, you know, Bird Girl has done with getting minorities involved in nature. And, And why is that important? Well, it's important because these people have different views. Everyone is brought up differently, whether we're in the city, what religion you know we follow, how we're taught, whatever. All of these different backgrounds can help. You know, it's like diversity in an ecosystem. You know, the more species we have, the more resilient the ecosystem is to change. And so, in effect, the more ideas, the more backstories, the more different people we have you know adding to the whole you know conversation the more sort of 
the more well, the more sort of fleshed out our argument becomes for actually wanting to save and, and make change. And I think kids, you know, massively getting kids involved, like we were saying, uh, mm. but just everyone. I think that this needs to come from absolutely everyone. And it's a real shame to see, you know, especially minorities, which are usually, uh, the trend is usually more urban. It's a real shame to see, you know, um, minorities not being inv- involved just because of the place where they live. And I, and that's, and I think there's mm. some great work that can be done there. Um, I think, yeah, I think um, also the like Harvey mentions the centre of you know ecology and, and conservation is very they they're very set in the ways they have their view mm. and they don't want to change it you know they've in in their eyes they've studied for this for twenty years so they're not going to be changed or uh, swayed in any way by anyone entering this this really it's a melting pot of different views and and people and what we've noticed personally is with us being young you know teenagers we have had it we've had our back backs against the wall when we're trying to sort of educate people and also gain contacts with very notable people because simply they just assume that we don't know what we're on about because we're only 17 mm. which to some extent is right you know it is you know, you should this, be. This podcast would suggest otherwise. Yeah, <laughs> Just well, yeah put that yeah. out there. <laughs> but you, you should be, you should be wary of, you know, younger people having such strong opinions because the likelihood is that they haven't really researched it that much. They haven't had as much time or experience. But I think what we've shown is that if you surround yourself with such, really such knowledgeable and experienced people, you can almost absorb five, ten, twenty years of knowledge into yourself and that's what young people can do you know from researching and doing their own independent studying they Mm. can almost catch up with some of the old guys and that that opinion and that view of these older people need to change what you're saying is really important really really Mm. important that young voices need to be taken seriously um Mm. and i think i think the youth movement has proven that recently actually so with some incredibly intellectual debate and points of view being given on a on an international platform some amazing people too just to add i mean in the youth i I absolutely love the youth act you know youth activism i think there's some amazing people really inspiring yeah absolutely It has been so inspiring to talk to you today and that's pretty much all we've got time for. But I would love to ask, um, how much hope have you got for the future for British wildlife? Can you fill us with inspiration and hope before we finish? I think the great thing is that, you know, although the fact that we're one of the most nature depleted countries in the world, I think the way to look at it in a positive way, it can't get much worse. (laughs) <laughs> and to some extent, you know, it's like it's like a blank slate. We've wiped the slate clean. This is a new canvas to paint the new nature of tomorrow. You know, and, and I was I was I've been reading about pelicans. Why? Let's just bring pelicans back. As you do. You know, but but again, it, it, it's all it's a species which loves beaver wetlands to some extent. So. I think that we can really now start to look at the landscape and go, what, how do we want it to look? And just just reading about archaeological remains in the Salisbury Plain and, and in Gloucestershire in, in, in the Somerset Levels and in the Norfolk Broads, it's a real insight into what we can have again. And mm. the reality is the, the movement is picking up pace. 
the rewilding revolution that I now call it is, you know, growing literally every second it feels like more conversation books on Amazon all I can't even catch up with the amount of books that have been published you know this is a real sort of movement and this is going to change things and it's the most exciting time to be alive really wow amazing what a send-off I mean guys thank you so much it's been so amazing to chat with you again and to hear all about your thoughts and mission and vision it's so so inspiring I don't know about you either but I feel very buoyed yeah quite Uh, thank you for having us on it's been great fun Wow, aren't they amazing guys? Inspirational chaps. Yeah. That was really incredible. I, I feel slightly um, humbled and slash inadequate. humiliated. Inadequate. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, no, me too. I mean, what I loved about it is that essentially it's just two mates who've been best friends since they were tiny, who've come, been joined together and inspiring each other along the way in this incredibly unique mission and that they've kind of had the almost intelligence to recognise that school isn't serving them in the way that they wanted Again, to. And that they've they broken the system, imme- haven't they? That's they've exactly broken it. the system and that they, they've recognised that they can add immense value mm. in this way and that they're just doing it. You know, they're not waiting mm. around, they're actually just physically doing it now. Gosh, we need more people like them, don't we? Absolutely brilliant. I hope they form um, inspiration and role models for many young people because we need more of the same. <laughs> mm, totally, totally. Power to their elbow. Indeed. And uh, talk, I was going to say talking of elbows, but that's nothing to do with quizzing me. Um, <laughs> but let's talk about quizzes because it's your turn to gather up some questions and challenge me to a final quiz of series one. How exciting. Final quiz. I have to say, if we were keeping a record, I think you're pretty much nailing these quizzes um, by comparison. Thanks. So uh, let's see if you can deliver this week as well. I have oh, got three questions ready. And this episode, we are playing Binomial Guess Who? So, oh, crikey, I'm... T- wow. <laughs> oh, crikey, wow. I think I might have stunned the oh, crikey, wow. <laughs> Excellent. I've got some Latin names here for you, and I want you to guess or give me the species, their common name. Brilliant. So, first up, it's a fairly easy one. Um, you'll probably know it. Parus Major. Oh, wow. I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I will give you famously a clue. terrible a species name. Yes, please. I'll give you a clue. It's a common garden bird. So have a oh, this... major, major. Uh, blue tit, blue tit. Just so oh, close. No. It's the great tit. Oh dearie me! <laughs> dearie I love you. a great tit as well. What is it? Parus major. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Won't well, that one. famously terrible at Latin. Shock. <laughs> Anyway, well, I think I, actually scientific, two. not necessarily Latin, isn't it? To be technical on it. Mm, okay, so Latin. on a theme, right. top tip here, little clue. On a theme for this episode's guests, Lacerta agilis. Agilis. So that implies some sort of agility, surely. So some, perhaps some sort of lizard. Perhaps a common lizard. Just so close again. It's the sand no. lizard. No, after oh. all that chat. And we even mentioned sand lizards in the blooming chat. I mean, frankly, the fact oh, you got apologies. a lizard, I think hats off to you. Um, so one species... Pure stab in the dark. <laughs> it's a really good stab. Fair play. Thank you. So final, final question. One species that mm. the beaver definitely helps is the Anax mm. Imperator. Oh my gosh, you are not... It's not very kind, not is it? You around with these <laughs> questions. Uh, say it again. 
The Anax Imperator. Imperator. There's absolutely no clue there. I'm just... Beavers benefit lots of things. I'm going to have another stab in the dark and say... Waterfall. It's actually the Emperor, Imperator, Dragonfly. But I mean, do you know what? Of course. Not the easiest of quizzes. And I'm really impressed you had a stab. So good on you. And I hope thank you, you, you listeners, if you got any out of three. A star for effort. Yeah, A for effort. I got zero (laughs) out of three. (laughs) And I'll be hiding behind the sofa for the first quiz of the next series. (laughs) (laughs) Well, gosh, that is it for series one of the Lodgecast. We've loved creating this series and we really hope that you've enjoyed it too. And thank you so much for such lovely feedback already. It's lovely to see. Yes, we've learned so much during our first foray into podcasting. And our producer does assure us that we've gone from total novices to podcast pros. You can uh, decide on that. I'm not quite sure I agree, but it's been a lot of fun learning. Um, Perhaps you can be the judge. So do leave us a nice review on your podcast platform um, of choice or head across to our social media at Beaver Trust and let us know what you've enjoyed most um, or what you'd like to hear more of in season two. Yes, well, there we go. We'll be back with another fresh batch of the Lodgecast later this year. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and keep an eye out on our social media to be the first to know when season two is released. And we've already got an eclectic list of exciting guests in the works. But until then, we're still beavering away and have plenty of things for you to look out for, including... We have just launched our first newsletter, which will be coming to you quarterly and full of huge fun, facts, news, beavery goodness. So do sign up to that. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a free sign up and it's called Another Damn Newsletter, which is exciting. Pun intended, of course. (laughs) So um, definitely subscribe to that. What else have we got? The other thing, uh, if you've got a creative, if you're of creative mind, uh, we've got a poetry competition running at the moment, which is being judged by Terry Gifford. So you can sign up online at beavertrust forward slash poetry. And the theme is very apt for this episode, actually, isn't it? It's all about the climate and ecological emergency. So if you have listened to this podcast or have been worried about the environment for the last couple of months and want to put pen to paper and share your thoughts with us, then do check out our poetry competition because it's a great way to kind of merge creativity with eco-anxiety and science and being stuck at home (laughs) with some free time. Yeah, special prize for a beaver poem as well. So get penning. Thanks so much again to Tom and Harvey from Celtic Reptile and Amphibian for joining us this month on the Lodgecast. You can hear more from them and follow their journey on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. And as always, you can and should follow Beaver Trust on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Beaver Trust or visit our website beavertrust.org. Have a read of our blogs, watch some of our films and sign up to another damn newsletter. And if you haven't already, you can also go back and listen to the other five podcast episodes in this series, which includes some awesome guests, such as broadcaster and author Simon Reeve and top beaver expert Dr. Rasheen Campbell-Palmer. This podcast, as always, is a mixture of fact and opinion. It was hosted by Sophie Pavel and Eva Bishop. It was produced and edited by Emma Bristian for Beaver Trust. 